And we have been going through this letter from Paul to Titus over the last, I think, four or five weeks now. The last two weeks in particular have been focused especially on the requirements and the qualifications, if you will, um, the character traits that Paul lays out for Titus, which are very similar, some of them identical to what he shows in his letters to Timothy concerning elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers. Um, And I said it last week, these lists are not exhaustive. In other words, there are other good and godly qualities that could be added to them. But these are lists that every church needs to consider as we both look at the elders who are existing now and we consider possible elders in the future. Because one of the things that Paul points out to Titus, you see it there in verse 5 again, is that it is the local churches themselves, according to Scripture, it is the local churches who are to equip and raise up and ordain elders. That has been the pattern for thousands of years now. And thank God that His Word is sufficient to not only reveal how we are to do this, but to grow all of us together so that we can see in the future former elders raising up future elders, present elders raising up and equipping future elders. Um, Perhaps you had a passing thought after last week uh, that this is a lot of talk or a lot of um, idea that is focused in these verses that is just focused on one group of people, predominantly elders. And maybe you are tempted to feel that since you don't fit into that category now or or at any point perhaps because of that um, maybe you feel like it's not important to spend much time focusing on this but again God is revealing to us in these verses that we've been looking at over the last two weeks that this is our responsibility as a church to hold each other and especially to hold elders accountable according to this list And so, I want to pick up in verse 9 with, I I think, what you could call the most essential quality or qualification of an elder. But he's transitioning in verse 9 into the rest of his letter as he begins to look outward into the church. And I think this qualification is so important. and, and, And it's fair to say that this is a qualification that actually every Christian should examine ourselves about. And the qualification is is what I have entitled this sermon based on verse 9. This is the qualification that every Christian should hold firm to God's Word alone. Hold firm to Scripture alone. And I have two points for us. The first one is this. The church is God's household. The church is God's household of worship. And secondly, we only worship Him 
and please him by holding fast the scripture. So we're going to primarily focus on verse 9. But how many of you believe the words that Jesus said? Man, I'm glad. Everyone just raised their hand for those on social media. That's a great start. The words in particular that say, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And since I know you just raised your hands, (laughs) every other word fits right into that category. Jesus is referring to the scriptures when he says that. And so there's, a, there's an idea, a, a truth that's been passed down through the churches, throughout the ages, that even in hearing the words of God, there is power, there is grace. Amen. So even though the primary focus um, is going to be around verse 9, and eventually we'll make it through the end of this chapter, I promise. I want to read the whole of chapter 1 again. One of the most important things that you can do when you study your Bible, that we can do when we study our Bibles, is to remember context is king. A, a verse that is taken out of context and then tried to be applied to our life is a dangerous thing because it can be taken any which way. And this is how false teachers work. This next section, uh, in particular verses 10 through 16, As we read through it, what you'll see is that Paul is not only telling Titus how he is to raise up elders and ordain elders, but he's saying some of them need to be corrected, first of all, and challenged. And part of Titus' ministry is what you could call confrontation, encouragement and confrontation. This is something that is true today. And it's more important than ever because we have more platforms through which people are hearing God's word. Whether it's being rightly or wrongly taught. Those watching on Facebook or those who hear this over the radio later. They didn't have that when Paul wrote these words. And if they were vital then, they're even more vital now. For us to be clear on what is true and hold firm to that. So let's read this chapter and then begin our time focusing on verse 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, 
not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, and who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for your holy word, your firm foundation. As the hymn that we sung earlier says, what more can you say than you've already said in the scriptures? May your hearts continually be moved and strengthened in grace by these truths. Bless the reading and the preaching, the hearing of your word now. We ask these things again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I I started the sermon by asking a question. If you were walking down the street and bumped into someone and they said, Oh, I know you're a person that goes to church. Can you just help me understand what is the church? I, I asked you to imagine how you would start to answer that. And we looked at just the simple word, the Greek root of the word church, ekklesia, which means assembly. And in particular, it means those who have assembled because they have been called out from darkness, called out from the world which they were born into, and called into the light of the gospel, of the glorious hope we have in Christ. As Paul points out in verse 1, the blessed hope of eternal life. And they have been called to assemble for a particular purpose. And there's three things that I want us to think about as we make our way back to verse 9. The nature of the church. Three marks that, that show us the nature of the church. First of all, the church is one in faith. The, the church is united in faith. So look with me once more at verse 4. He says to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Again, that word common has to do with having something in common. 
And Paul, who was a Jew, and Titus, who was not, would have been thought to be two people that had nothing in common. But now, by God's grace, they are brothers in Christ. And you see the affection in Paul's words there. My true son in our common faith. So first of all, to be a Christian, to be part of the church, is to understand that we, the church, are one. And that doesn't just mean one in terms of our unity here in this church, but that means throughout the world, across borders and barriers, even across the ages. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that, that, that term that Paul uses in Romans 8, 1, is not just talking about an individualistic idea. That refers to all believers collectively. Nothing can divide what God has put together. And we'll come back to that. The church is united in Christ by faith in His finished work alone. But secondly, the church is holy, pure. This word holy can be used for ethical terminology. In in other words, pure uh, righteousness in our life. These are the kind of things that should mark the church. But it also means, first of all, set apart. As I said before, the church is those, those of us who have become called out from the world and set apart for whatever God says His purposes are in His Word. And so, we're secondly holy in terms of being set apart. But, as I said in the first sermon, the purpose of God saving us and working in our lives is to produce a godliness, that what, a type of godliness that we can't get in our own strength because of our nature that has been corrupted by sin. Look again at verse 1 with me. Paul says he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he states his purpose for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. There's a direct connection between immediately the knowledge of the truth that we believe about Christ and the purpose of God to, to begin shaping us into the image of Christ and to continue doing that until we die, until we see Him, until our faith becomes sight. To use theological uh, jargon or terms, you could say it this way. Justification is our first experience of salvation. When God declares us righteous, or in fact, I should say it this way, being born again, regeneration, which Paul speaks about in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Regeneration, as he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, is the first act that God does in our life, in time and space and history, which leads to us seeing Christ. And the moment we believe, we are justified. We are declared righteous because of the righteousness that Christ has achieved. But the evidence of that justification, the evidence of that righteousness is, you shall know them by their fruits, is something called sanctification. Anyone who is not being continually sanctified has never been justified. This is something that we need to 
really pray about and examine on a regular basis in our lives. And anyone who has not been yet justified from being born again cannot be sanctified, cannot be godly in any way. And again, this, this godliness, this word godly, this divides humanity. There's something called an equator which no one can see or touch with their physical eyes, their physical hands. That, that we call this thing the equator that goes around the world, right? And above it and below it. Closest to it, you have sort of tropical zones. You have countries that experience being close to the equator. And the further away you get, well, things don't look the way they do for us outside, even this time of year. And we all grew up being taught about this equator. It's like a dividing line between the physical realm. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is like an equator that divides all of humanity since the beginning of time. The good news that God promised in Genesis 3.15 that He was going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent and undo His works. That is what marks out those who are godly or those who are ungodly. You always see the work of God in the life of the people of God. And sometimes it doesn't or I would say most of the time, it doesn't happen as fast as we would like. Many of you, I'm sure, have planted trees, and you, you go out, and you see it sprout, so you water it some more a week later, and two weeks later, and you don't actually see the very growth taking place before your eyes. But in a year, when you go to pick fruit from that tree, there's no doubt. You're not going to sit next to that tree and say, I wonder if this tree is growing. Because you know and you know that you grew the tree and it took a year to get this fruit. In the same way, you're not going to go to a mango tree and look for oranges unless there's something that's not clicking about how fruits work. Well, this is the second mark of the church of Jesus Christ. Those who are His are marked by Christ-likeness, by godliness, and by this desire to be set apart for his purposes and to become more like him and we see that all throughout this letter in fact and thirdly as we make our way to verse 9 the church is first of all united it's one secondly it's holy it's set apart for him and is growing in holiness but thirdly another mark of the church is that it's truth based Verse 1 again, the knowledge of the truth, referring to God's truth in God's word, that leads to godliness. Do you see how inextricably linked, how directly linked the word of God is to your growth as a Christian? And I, I would press this down as we were discussing it uh, Wednesday gone in the Bible study here. On Wednesday night. I would press this down. The verse we're going to look at now in verse 9. Encourages us to receive a challenge. To grow in our practice of devoting ourselves to the word of God. So let's read, let's read verse 9. 
as we move off of this second point. Verse 9 says this. He must. This is the close of, remember, this is the close of elders' qualifications. And that word must means this is not a suggestion. This is not a possible idea. But this is one of those dividing lines between those who are going to be committed to God and those who are in it for the wrong reason. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine or healthy truth, healthy teaching. That's what that word sound means. It means healthy or whole, wholesome. And refute or rebuke those who contradict it. This was embodied by the Lord Jesus Himself. As a child, we saw Jesus going to the temple and devoting Himself to the Scriptures. And it tells us in Luke 2, I believe it is, that He grew in favor and stature with everyone by His commitment to knowing God through His Word, knowing the Father more through His Word, and making Him known through His teaching of the truth. And is Jesus not one who rebuked those who oppose the truth? Both of these things are seen clearly in the life of Jesus, the most loving human that ever lived. His ministry was primarily marked by preaching and by living out the things He preached and taught. So the second point is, we only please God as we hold fast to His truth. And this is very important. How is it, as verse 10 states, there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. How is it that a person moves into the realm of being rebellious? We're all born rebellious. And I want you to think about this question. Those who have moved amongst us as professing believers, those who profess to know God, as verse 16 says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. Well, how is it that a person can move into the realm of rebelliousness, move into the realm of mere talkers or empty talk, as some translations put it? I would suggest that a person doesn't just wake up one morning and say, do you know what? Today, I'm going to start teaching false things. It doesn't work like that. One step at a time. Maybe for some people that's how it works. But most of the time, you see a gradual departure taking place. And in the same way that we are blessed to have these many forms of communication that we're making use of now for those who are not capable to be present, like Facebook and YouTube and the radio. We listen to those things every day, most of us, don't we? And do you know what comes through those, whether it's written or spoken? Voices. Voices. 
And not all those voices are holding fast to the trustworthy word of God. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the scriptures. In fact, the majority of the voices that we hear, even if they use Bible verses to say what they're trying to say, they're not holding fast to the trustworthy word. So if we are not careful, and if we ourselves, as Christians, are not dedicating ourselves to holding fast to this word, our minds, just by the way we're created as humans, begins to be shaped by ideologies that are not from God. God has not spoken in any other holy book. This is the word of God alone. The Quran, the book the Mormons use, the non-translation of the Jehovah's Witness, so-called Bible, and many others we could add to that list. They are not God's word. This is not a judgmental, better-than-them statement, brothers and sisters. This is about life eternal. This is about knowing the true God and helping others know Him. Holding fast to Scripture is an expectation God has had for His people throughout the ages. Would it be loving if we went into a doctor's office and sat down and told them our amazing plans for the summer that's coming up to travel the world? Would it be loving for that doctor to say, you know what, I just found out that this person sitting in front of me who's really excited is probably not going to be able to travel. It's probably, in fact, that travel will probably kill them because they're sick. But they're so happy that I don't want to make them unhappy. I don't want to mess their day up. So you know what? I'm going to tell them to have a good trip. Would that be a good doctor? That would be a sick doctor. That would be a doctor that is worthy of being disbarred and put in jail. And God knows the souls and our deepest needs in a way that none of us do. And He chooses to meet them through this word that we are called to hold fast to. Beloved, we're living in a time where churches around the world and many professing Christians, even some who we may be close to, who have stood in pulpits like this one and taught from the Bible, are giving in to ideologies that don't align with this. In the name of so-called love. One pastor puts it this way. Everyone only knows the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And leaves the other 10 on the floor, upside down. Love and what appears to be nice don't always align up. They don't always line up. We are called to love God first and foremost, which means accepting everything He's said in here is true, and love our neighbor as ourselves, which means telling them the truth.
and calling them to come into this communion, this fellowship with the living God through the life and the death and resurrection of His only Son. One of the quiet oppositions that many professing Christians and pastors today are giving into is part of this sexual revolution that has run aground on our shores overtly and covertly and I want to I want to encourage you to look back with me once more at the first page of the Bible Genesis chapter 1 I'm going to go to We go to verse 26. If you were paying attention to the questions and answers that we read from the Shorter Catechism, there's two things that we read this morning that are being called hate speech just by saying that they're true. That are, that are being called too narrow-minded if you believe them just by saying that they're true. The first one is this. God created the world in six days. I don't know what else you get out of Genesis 1. But the second and more, perhaps, more deadly one is this concept that is at the heart of the gender dysphoria, the gender confusion, the sexual revolution that we are going to be told we should accept to be loving. But let's see what God says about humanity and these, these issues once more. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground then God said I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, sixth day. And we go on to, to see Adam's response in chapter 2 when God presents the, the woman to him, Eve. Let's read those words in the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is not filled with any contradictions, by the way. It's just Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pausing and going a little bit deeper in some of the things that God said to us in those verses we just read in chapter 1. So now he's expanding on this creation of mankind. Let's look at verse, the end of verse 20. 
But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame. Naked and unashamed. In pure, perfect union. In true marriage. This is the foundation of all humanity. Amen. Two genders, and to use the word rightly, no other. No other. God, throughout the entire of his revelation, has carefully taken time to show us what it means to be made in his image as a man and as a woman and how to live in the best flourishing way, in the, in the most productive and blessed way for our good. He hasn't done that with any other because there is no other gender. And at the heart of these truths, what we're going to be tempted to do in short order is to say, well, just be polite, which we should, and call people what they want to be called. And allow for a little bit here and a little bit there. Because at least we can say that this is our corner as the church. But if you watch what's taking place in history, there's an invasion of false ideologies coming into the household of truth. And in fact, the reason I'm talking about this is because I love God. And I love everyone. I know what is best for those who believe wrongly about this. What is best is to come back to their maker and be remade in his image through Christ and experience the life of abundance that comes with that. Look with me at one more passage before we get back to Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's another young pastor, trainer, that the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to and he believed and is helping to establish the church in Ephesus. And Paul goes on to say similar things that he did to Titus. He tells him in, in, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1 that his purpose in leaving him in Ephesus was so that he may tell people to devote themselves in, in belief and in lifestyle to what is true. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, Although I hope to come to you soon, here's his purpose in writing, I am writing these things, these instructions to you, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God 
the pillar and foundation of the truth. And then he breaks into doxology. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. But right here at the heart of this letter, Paul says, the scriptures that you have in your very hands were given to you so that you would know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. And while we need to be careful not to isolate anyone because of the particular sins that they commit to, we need to make sure that we call something that is a sin, a sin. Why? Because God has done this. He says in Revelation, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. What that means is not a person who's wrestling with feelings within themselves, but a person who has been able to say, I can commit to this lifestyle of sin and has done that, proving that they don't believe the truth. Anyone who lives in a life of unrepentant sin, any sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're not committed to God and His truth. Okay, I was mistaken. There's one more passage that I want us to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because part of the argument that people are bringing in regards to this matter is that this is how some people are born. I recently observed someone using that kind of language, trying to be wise, and said something along the lines of, I haven't read it anywhere in Scripture that XYZ, the false ideologies he continued to propagate. But the problem is, You're not reading scripture. You're not holding fast to this word if you can't see these basic truths. And you're being shaped by ideas which don't come from God's mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 9, he says this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, some translations say homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Think about this. If he's saying that these particular things are what identified a group of people, but that that identity no longer exists, that proves that that cannot be their concrete identity. Because he says, these people, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he says homosexuals will not nor drunkards, people who are living their life to be drunk. You can add other drugs in there too. 
no matter what science is starting to say about the goodness of them. Anyone who lives to basically have their mind bent as a form of escapism from reality with substances or sexually immoral people or prostitutes or homosexuals or greedy people or slanderers or swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, such were some of you. And what has made the distinction between what they used to be and what they are? Verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Praise God for His transforming power. You see, Christianity and services like this are not just something to add on to your agenda to make sure that we have ticked the box of doing this one other good thing. This is about entering a life of transformation where the power of God, because of the presence of God indwelling His people, changes us. Praise God that that is the truth. And some of you know what it's like to live in a life of addiction. And you know how unloving it would be if someone tried to convince you that you could have continued in that somehow, but still be committed to Christ. No. Jesus uses the same language in two passages that I want to... I just want to look at one because they say the exact same thing. Turn with me to the final genuinely final passage for the sermon. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And there's other things that, that, that Paul goes on to tell Titus in chapter 1 there about false teaching and the dangers of it. And we'll get to that. But I want us to think one last time about this holding fast to Scripture. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says these words. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He was giving a particular challenge to certain people at that time. But this is the point he's trying to make. You cannot serve two masters. Those who are the children of God, those who have been born again into this kingdom, who have become part of the church, we have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has given us His Word. The way He exercises His Lordship is by the Spirit, through the word in the life of his people. And holding fast to this word requires us to take up and read daily. Brothers and sisters, if you have read the Bible 50 times but have been reading it less and less, don't pause. There is nothing more powerful in the universe than the Word of God. 
And we need to be refreshed in the truth of God's word. Go back again to Genesis and read through to Revelation. However, you see that you'd like to try and do that. There's lots of good, helpful guides for how to go about doing that. But this is the voice from heaven. Amidst a sea of all kinds of voices, many of them posing to be on God's team. To be speaking for God. And as the church, this is what God commands us to do. To hold fast to the trustworthy word as it has been handed down to us. We need to love those who don't see this and pray for them and share the gospel with them and make time to patiently speak with them. And amongst God's people, if people amongst us in this building or watching who are part of this church or listening who are part of this church or other true churches, if you begin to commit yourself to departing to these kind of truths, especially the gospel. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you and would refresh your mind with the finished work of Christ and bring you back to the truth. And let those who who love the Lord depart from iniquity. And let those who love iniquity and do not wish to change depart from naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those who are loving God by loving His Word, by loving His people, and by sharing the truth of the Gospel with those we come into contact with. And may we hold firm to the end by His grace. Let's pray. Father, once again, we, we see that there is so much to consider in Your Word. But you are so kind and patient with us. There are a whole multitude of ways that we fail to embrace your truth on a daily basis. And so we are reminded of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Those who are looking to him in faith to pray. To forgive us each day our sins. Thank you God that you don't expect perfection but that you do call us to a new direction and that we can repent daily. I pray that these words would help someone perhaps for the first time repent and believe the gospel. And for the rest of us who have already trusted in the finished work of Christ, I pray that this would remind us to live our lives repentantly, to live a life of repentance and faith in the gospel trusting and holding firmly your trustworthy word thank you for being so kind to speak to us in such a powerful and comforting way and may our hearts and minds as we continue to worship be reminded that one day we will see you with our eyes and not just by faith because of your love and your faithfulness to us. And we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, as you have promised, where we will not have any inward sin or any effects of the sin in ourselves and others around us. 
but a, a place that will be marked by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Move our hearts by these truths and help us to be a people that is committed to your word, that are committed to knowing you more through your word and going back to old truths and old paths and committing our hearts and minds daily, asking us each time, asking of you each time that you would refresh us by your word, that you would open our, our minds and hearts to see more of you and to keep us faithful. Would you do these things and would you commit to your people to continue holding us fast as we hold fast to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.